Well, welcome to February of 2024. Um, a couple uh, news items to keep in mind as, as we go into this year, as we're in the second month. But uh, Texas has squared off against the federal government with uh, 25 other states. Uh, Taylor Swift is the biggest name in professional football. And Ben Shapiro is the number one rapper in the United States. And it's only February. It can only go up from here, folks. But it is good to be here. It is good to be in the Lord's house where we can take our minds off of what's going on out there for just a few minutes and to look to our Lord and our Savior and the hope that we have before us. Um, it is always a, a nice break, a nice rest that we get to gather together as the Lord's people to worship Him. Now this morning, we are continuing in our Malachi study by moving on to the next set of verses. Pastor began um, a section last week that we will come back to. Pastor is going to finish up those, those verses in that section, but we are moving on today to the next part of chapter 3 before we move on to chapter 4, which is the final chapter of the book of Malachi, and it's a short little section of, of Malachi, but there is still a lot to say there. So believe it or not, we're kind of in the, the planning of descent for the book of Malachi. We're still about 30,000 feet in the air, but we, the lights have come on and they're telling us to sit down as we get ready to land. And so us, as good reformed people, should be done in about six to eight months. But I have been greatly blessed by this series of Malachi. Uh, the minor prophets are not really given a whole lot of attention in, in a lot of evangelical churches today, um, which I think they're missing out on that because there have, there's been a lot that we have been able to pull from this book and this prophecy that has been applicable to our lives because it is part of the Word of God, because it is what God has spoken to us. And so I have been blessed as we have gone through this book, and I truly hope that you have as well. So throughout this study, if you've been paying attention, you've noticed that there are a series of disputes that are brought forth. And most of these disputes start with God saying something or making some sort of accusation against his people Israel, and the people will respond uh, with ignorance or disagreement to what he has to say. This happens six times throughout the book, and I'm going to give a little bit of a recap just so we can um, come back to, to what's going on today, but it happens six times throughout the book. And in the first three of the accusations, there is the exposure of the corruption that is going on. And then the latter three, it is confronting that corruption. So our sin, in order to be dealt with, must first be exposed before God, and then confronted by God. We have to be able to see our own sin if we are to recognize our need for a Savior. The first that God says to his people is, I still love you. I have loved you, says the Lord. But the people respond with, how have you loved us? 
They doubted God's love. They doubted God's provision. They refused to see the ways that God has worked over and over in their lives. The second is that God accused his people of defiling the temple. They offered unacceptable sacrifices upon the altar. And again, they say, how have we defiled the temple? How have we offered wrong sacrifices? And this is not just the people of Israel. But this is the priests who know better, who have been trained in such a way, who know the law of Moses, who know what God expects in his sacrifices, and who should be holding the people accountable to what God requires in their sacrifices. The third, God accuses the men of acting wickedly against him and their wives. And they say again, what? Or how? Israelite men are marrying non-Israelite women and being drawn in to their pagan religion practices. They're divorcing their wives and moving to these other women who have ungodly practices. The divorce is not justified. And then we get to the second set of three, the confronting of the sin. So the first of those is Israelite, the Israelites accuse God by saying, where is the God of justice? Injustice abounds in our world. We look, all we have to do is look beyond our camp and we see that there is injustice everywhere and God seems to be doing nothing. But God responds by saying, I will send my messenger. I will do something about the injustice because I am the God of justice and I am on my throne. The second of the latter three are God calls the people to repent. He calls his people back to him. And again, they say, how? Again, they question God or they disagree with God. And this has to do with their tithe and their robbing of God, of what he is due. And Pastor will continue to speak on this in the coming weeks. And this morning, we get to the final dispute of this uh, book of the accusations that are being made. And often we can look at what we do and what we offer to God in our worship and still we, we may not see the results of, of our faithfulness. We may look and be like the Israelites and look out at the world and say, what's going on? Where is God? And we might, we might even be tempted to say, what's the point? What's the point of our faithfulness? What's the point of going to church week after week? What's the point of praying? What's the point in giving? What's the point in giving my life to God? What's the point in losing family and losing friends over this when I'm not seeing the results of it? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So before we do that, let us ask the Lord to bless his, this time today. Father, I pray that you would... Um, speak today through your word. I pray that you would open hearts to receive you, that you would open minds to understand what you have. Father, if there's anybody here who is struggling in their faith, struggling with the question of what's the point and why should I continue to do this, Lord, I pray that you would Reveal yourself to that person. I pray that you would keep me from error today. I pray that I would decrease and that Christ be increased, that nothing would get in the way of him today. pray all these things in the name of Christ.
Amen. Verse 13 of Malachi chapter 3 starts with the Lord saying, Your words have been hard against me. Now the Hebrew here, the word chazak, means to be strong or to grow in strength, to seize, to grasp, to hold firm, or to harden. The word for against or on here goes along with that, so it's, it's a literal translation would be, your words have been strong upon me. In the Greek Septuagint, the word here means to weigh down. It's to give this idea that the words being spoken against God have weighed him down. They're hard, they're heavy, and have weighed him down. And this is not as, in, as if God is up there complaining and saying, I don't know what to do about this. They're speaking really bad things about me. It's simply he's making the accusation. He's pointing out their sin. He's saying, this is what you are doing against me. You are speaking against me. You are speaking against a holy and a righteous God. They're grumbling and they're complaining. Now, all the ways that God has provided for his people and cared for his people throughout their entire history, and yet they continue to grumble and complain and I'm not quite here yet with my kids. They're still kind of asking the why and how and all that. But if you have older kids, and, be, and I know this for a fact because I was one of these kids, um, that you, you do everything as a parent for your kids, and yet they still grumble and they still complain as if you're not doing enough for them. But when our sinful hearts take over and we push aside the good things God has blessed us with and all the ways that he has provided over and over for us, and we continue to say, well, how have you blessed me? How have you actually been good to me? When we grumble and we complain. Hard hearts the people had and high expectations of what they expected God to do. Now, in 530 B.C., the decree of Cyrus went out, which ended the Babylonian captivity and allowed the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple that was destroyed. And Malachi is prophesying around 460 B.C., so nearly 100 years later. And the Israelites had this mindset that they believed that when the temple was rebuilt, that Peace and prosperity and justice and the return of God's Spirit would come and just everything would be great. Now, where, would they might, where might they have gotten this from? Well, if you look at Haggai chapter 2, verses 3 through 9, it says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel. Declares the Lord, be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. 
And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And then we look at Zechariah chapter 1, 16 and 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. All of this that was prophesied before Malachi... All of this sounds amazing. Yet here in Malachi, doesn't seem to be a whole lot of peace and prosperity going on. And the problem is, is they were missing the bigger picture of what was to come. The shalom that is talked about here, the peace that is talked about here, was far more than just stopping conflict. As we know, the... Um, the expectation of the Jews when, with the coming of the Messiah during the time of the Romans, the reason, one of the reasons they rejected Christ was because he wasn't a soldier. He wasn't a general. He wasn't coming in to raise up a rebellion against the Romans to overthrow them and bring in the kingdom of God. He didn't meet their expectations. But it's more than just stopping conflict. It's a lasting and righteous order. And who brought this order? Of course, it was Christ. It was the Messiah whom they rejected. He brought the peace. He brought the prosperity. He brought the order. And God was indeed with his people because Christ walked among them. And then, after he ascended in the day of Pentecost, those who believe the Holy Spirit came upon them and dwelt within his people. There is a greater fulfillment in view here. Yes, the temple was rebuilt. And yes, it was more glorious than the first. But what became of that temple, church? What happened to that second temple eventually? It was torn down. It was destroyed. Jesus' words in the book of Matthew, not one stone shall be left upon another, happened. The physical temple is gone. We can have conversations about, well, is there going to be another temple? And many believe that there is. And we'll see, that might be the case. But for the Christian, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are God's temple. God's Spirit dwells within us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.19. The wicked words that the Israelites have brought against God weighed him down. God wasn't meeting their expectations, and he wasn't doing the things that they thought he should be doing. They were ignorant, because they asked constantly the question of how, or what, or why. And when we approach God with questions... We shouldn't ask questions if we don't want to know the answer to them. Now, God is not opposed to questions. We don't know everything. We're never going to know everything. We could study the Bible for a hundred lifetimes and not even scratch the surface of the glory and of the truth that is in here. So don't think today I'm saying that you can't ask questions. You should ask questions. That's how you learn. But where is your heart in the questions that you're asking? 
What's your attitude like? Do you truly want to know the answer to these questions so that you can more properly worship God and and be strengthened in your relationship with Him and have your faith increase? Those are good questions to ask. People ask Jesus questions all the time, and He answered them. But when we turn to God and we see His promises, we see how God has declared that He loves us and He has blessed us and He is here for us and that He provides for us, and we say, well, how? Prove it. Show me how you have done these things. It's arrogant. It's ignorant. It's best to own up and be honest with God. There's a movie out there, and I'm not promoting this movie in any way, but I I was reminded of a scene from this movie. It's called Liar, Liar. And uh, it's a Jim Carrey movie, and, and he's a pathological liar he just he can never tell the truth and his son in the movie makes a wish that his father could just go 24 hours without telling a single lie and the son's wish comes true and and Jim Carrey's character spends the next 24 hours unable to be uh, dishonest and there's a scene where he gets pulled over by a police officer and the police officer asks him the common question of do you know why I pulled you over And because we're all great Christians, if we have ever been pulled over, we respond with, of course I do. I was speeding. Well, probably not. Because that's an admission of guilt. And we don't like to be guilty. But in this movie, he's asked the question, do you know why I pulled you over? And he immediately says, I sped. I followed too closely. I ran a stop sign. I almost hit a Chevy. I sped some more. I failed to yield at a crosswalk. I changed lanes at an intersection. I changed lanes without signaling while running a red light and speeding. The cop then asks, is that all? And he opens his glove compartment and goes, no, I have unpaid parking tickets. And they just all fall out. And it reminded me of this is because when, when we're confronted and we're, giving, we're given an opportunity to own up to our sin, we don't sound like this guy. We tend to dance around. We're like, well, I'm not, I'm not as bad as that guy. I mean, sure, I've got some faults, but I'm not as bad as them. But it's best to own up. It's best to be honest about ourselves and our condition and where we are before God because we can't hide anything from God. We can say, well, I don't, I don't know, why do you accuse me? Well, God's going to tell you. <laughs> we can't hide anything from God. But we don't like to be guilty and to admit our sin, to, to confess it, is to admit that we are guilty. It is, it is to make an admission of guilt. But the truth is we are guilty before a holy God because we're sinful and of course, Christ has taken that. I don't want to, to linger and have us as believers think that we, we still bear guilt. But when we're honest with ourselves and our truthfulness prior to Christ, we are guilty before a holy God. There was an Instagram post I saw from a friend of mine this week where they posted on their story that sometimes life is just truly unfair. I wanted to respond with, well, says who? What's your standard for what life should be? 
What's your standard for fairness that you're using here? What kind of life are you living where you think God's, God owes you anything good? Where you think God owes you anything uh, that's going to prosper you? But especially when he has shown you mercy over and over and over again and we continue to come at him and say, you're not fair. You haven't blessed me. You haven't met my expectations. And of course, we're owed the wrath of God. But God gives grace. God gives mercy. And God gives peace to those who call on the name of the Lord, who turn to Christ as their Savior and repent of their sins. And even though we are guilty, God sent His Son to pay the fine. The bigger picture here is that Israel didn't see the bigger picture. They didn't see the the greater fulfillment of what was going on here with peace and prosperity. That it was not necessarily a physical peace, but it was peace with God. It was prosperity with God. It was a life looking forward to eternity with God. So I would ask the question today for you, church, what is your expectation of the Christian life? What do you expect when you come to church, when you pray, when you give, when you live a life that is faithful? Do you expect ease? Do you expect God to just do everything for you, everything you want Him to do because you gave your life to Him and now He owes you? Or do you expect trials and tribulation? Do you expect loss? Because that comes with giving your life. When you turn your back on the world, when you push out the world and you say, I don't identify with the world, the world will hate you. When you identify with Christ, when you identify with your Savior, the world hates you because it hates Christ. And Christ divides. He brings forth a sword. He divides. But he brings peace with God. Verse 14 says this. Now God is telling them what they've said. They've asked the question, how or what or why, and now God is saying, this is what you've said. It is vain to serve God. Pointless, worthless to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? This is really really revealing about the hearts of the Israelites. When they said, how have we spoken against you? God says, well, you say it's worthless to serve me. They didn't see the immediate results, so they didn't see what the point was in their worship or their walking with God. There was no profit in it. They put on an act. They were walking as if they were mourning. They would probably sackcloth and ashes. So the, the outward appearance was, oh, we're mourning, we're, we're here, we want God, we want to serve Him, but things are going bad, so we're mourning. But their hearts were far from God. And in this, we already see how legalistic their worship practices were getting. And it only gets worse by the time we get to the, the life of Christ with the Pharisees and the outward appearance of holiness when the inward is lost. They were simply going through the motions. I fear that the church today, many people are just going through the motions. 
And as we've seen throughout this series, they've done things that are not pleasing to God. They've given God less than what God requires. And so we, when we come into worship on Sunday week after week, it's not just the fact that we're here, though we are glad you're here. If you're here and you're not a part of the family of God, if you have not uh, confessed your sins and turned to Christ, we are happy you're here. We welcome you here. But this is a place of worship. This is a place where we sing praises to the Lord. This is a place where we set our minds' attentions and hearts' affection on Christ. And we don't want to go through the motions. We want to offer acceptable worship to the Lord. And there is a cost to that. And the question for that is the cost worth the reward? Do we know what the reward is? Many of us do. Some of us may not. Some of us may not understand what the reward is, but we have to weigh the cost. Is it worth being here week after week offering worship to God if we're not seeing immediate results? And I would argue absolutely it is worth being here. If the Israelites offered the right sacrifices, if they gave what God requires, if they worshiped in the right way, they were met with opposition, still, various captivities, torture, prison, and death. We know that much of that was a judgment because of their turning away from God. But just in comparison to the Christian life, how about today? As a Christian, if I go to church, if I give, if I pray, if I read my Bible, I just lost my job, I lost friends, I lost family members, got a bad diagnosis from the doctor, I don't feel very much joy in my life, we could be tempted to say, it's vain to serve God, it's pointless to serve God, because all I'm experiencing right now is pain and suffering. What has God done for me? But Paul in his epistles, especially 2 Timothy, very much talks about enduring to the end, finishing the race well. See, Christians, we're still in the race. When you're running, you get tired, if you, and especially if you haven't trained well for it. But we're still in the race. We're still going to struggle at times. And some of that is God allowing us to go through trials and temptations in order that we might strengthen our faith. God does not tempt us. God is not a tempter, but God will allow us to be tempted so that we can show our faithfulness. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, and neither is your hope, Christian, Your hope is not in this world, nor the rulers of this world, nor the circumstances of this world. This world is going to pass away. This world is going to be no more. So why, this is why we can't place our hope and happiness in any of these things. They're going to pass away. And if we place our hope in things that will pass away, our hope will also pass away eventually. Through multiple captivities, and then the Greeks and the Romans were on their way, 
the Israelites had no room or right or reason to complain, even in the midst of all of these. For they have a whole history of seeing God's faithfulness, His covenant promises to His people and providing for them. And even through the Greeks and the Romans and the persecutions that happened after that, all up to today, Christians have been persecuted. But God has provided and preserved His church. There is always a remnant. Is God forcing you to rely on Him this morning? When you lose everything, the question is, what else do you have? If you truly lost everything today, would you still worship God? I think that's an honest question. Because I do know some people would probably say no, if they were being honest. Do you rely on God to provide for you everything you need? The story of Job is an excellent example of this where Job truly did lose everything. He lost his children, he lost his animals, he lost his wealth, to the point where his wife turns to him and says, curse God and die. He has friends who offer terrible advice, and I'm sure we can all relate to that. I'm sure we all have those friends who think that they're helping, but kind of make you feel worse, really. But then after everything, God approaches Job in the world. He speaks to the whirlwind, and he says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? God does with his creation what he wills. And God ended up uh, giving Job back what he lost, even more so. God provided for him. But Job had to shut up and listen and learn. So who or what is your trust in today? And where is that trust pointing you to? Abraham was given a promise. But Abraham didn't see the fulfillment of that promise in his lifetime. The book of Hebrews says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. For some of us, the fulfillment of God's promises will come with his return in establishing the kingdom here. We have a similarity in some of this for today that we can think about. In verse 15, it says, And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prospered, but they put God to the test and they escape. There's the appearance of the blessing of the wicked in the world. And part of this, we need to understand the will and purpose of God. Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 through the first part of 21 says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes the time and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Every king, every ruler that is in the position of power that they are in, whether good or bad, 
has been given that power and that position by God. Romans 13.1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And then we see in the book of Isaiah, God accomplishing his will through the Assyrians. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send them, and against the people of my wrath I command him. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. God used the Assyrians to execute judgment. He didn't force them. He didn't make them evil. He says his heart is to destroy. He used an evil person for his purposes, but God is not the author of evil. But we look at the world and we see all the evil that's going around. We see the rulers who are being raised up. We, we have this idea that God is blessing evil. But if we come to that conclusion, we don't understand God's will and how he uses all things for his purposes and for his glory. So coming back to this question in closing, what's the point? Do we expect God to do something now? Do we expect God to just wipe out all the evil and the wicked in the world right now? Well, maybe. We don't know when the Lord is coming back, but until he does, we worship him. We say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. We submit to his word as he commands us to do so. God raises up those to fulfill his purpose and accomplish his will, and sometimes that will is judgment. If we're here in America and we're looking around and we see that it looks like God is judging us, well, he might be. Romans 1 gives a really good picture of what God's judgment looks like, giving people up to their passions, giving people over to their sin. And I think we see this played out every single day. Calvin is... It said, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. Is God unfair or unjust in his judgment? Of course not. God is good. And we must learn to understand that, understand this. We cannot be with the Israelites and say, it is worship, or it is vain to worship God. It is vain to continue on in this. But we hold fast to the promises that God has revealed to us in Scripture, that he will make all things new, he will put an end to evil, he will judge righteously. And so the benefit of faithfulness that we see in Scripture is Christ. The benefit of faithfulness is eternal life with Christ. The worst the world can do to us, church, is kill us. But Paul says it is far better to depart and be with God. Amen? That's what my Bible says. So the world can threaten us. The world can come against us. It has no ground because it stands on a foundation of sand that washes away when we stand on a foundation of stone. We may not see the fulfillment of what, it, what God is doing now. We may not see it in our lifetime, but we will see it in the last day when God makes all things new, when there is no more death when there is no more sickness, 
no more pain, and God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes, all because of Christ and what he has done. It is vain, church, to speak against God. The wicked will not prosper. So if you are here today and you have not given your life to Christ, if you have not repented of your sins and put your trust in him, I pray that today, this morning, would be that day when you turn to Christ, when you can be forgiven, when you can look at what Christ has done for you and say, I belong to him and I am saved, I am secure, and I have a hope in the future. Even if I don't understand it or see it right now, I do trust in the promises of God that he will fulfill and do what he promised he will do. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the way that you have spoken and preserved your word for us. That you have not left us to wonder what will happen in the future. You have not left us to our own devices, but you have revealed yourself in Christ. That you have promised to forgive us of all of our sins if we repent and put our trust in our Messiah, in our Savior. And Lord, we do trust that today. We do fall back and rely on your promises. So, Father, be with us in the rest of our worship today. May it be glorifying to your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.